This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 84. Today, our special guest is Mo Carrick. We talk with Mo about creating brave space workplaces and what leaders need to consider. Don't go away. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Well, hello, everyone. It's Michelle. And Tracy. Welcome back to another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. Yes, yes. We're so excited to be back. And we just wrapped up a phenomenal interview with Mo Carrick. Yeah, what a great lady. Yeah, she is. She has a lot of energy and is doing phenomenal work. Um, And uh, I first heard her speak at the Northwest um, O&E Conference, which is Organization of Nurse Leaders. Um, I don't know, it was couple years ago. And I just thought, oh, she is a kindred spirit of Tracy and I. And I so much wanted her to be on our podcast someday. And we did it. Yeah. 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 I just, uh, it's so great when you can talk to somebody that, you know, has the same, you share a history, but you haven't had that history together. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great way to put it. (laughs) You know, like we've had similar experiences, right? Of course she works across industries and, you know, where we've, most of our efforts have been focused in healthcare, but but yeah, it's just really great to hear her perspectives and to learn from her and uh, just a phenomenal leader and individual. That's really very, very um, interesting, her, her perspective. Yeah, very interesting and very um, inspirational. So let us tell you a little bit about Mo Carrick. Um, being equal parts pragmatic and provocative, Mo Carrick engages readers and audiences on the so-called quote-unquote soft stuff that really matters. People, culture, leading, team health, work fit, and business as a source for good. She is the principal and founder of Momentum Incorporated, a certified B Corp and consulting firm dedicated to the vision of creating a world that works for everyone. Mo believes business can be a force for good. She is a certified Daring Way facilitator, a highly experiential methodology based on the research of Dr. Brene Brown. She's also a certified coach and authorized distributor for the Wiley suite of products and a certified benchmark facilitator with the Center for Creative Leadership and a standing member of the Denison Culture Roundtable. 
Mo is a frequent contributor to the Work Smart blog and Conscious Company and Success Magazines. She has presented on a variety of topics and at numerous organizations, including South by Southwest, the Women's Center for Leadership, University of Michigan, TEDx San Juan Island, and several others. Mo describes what she does simply, help people do their best work. And you are going to hear that today in our podcast. And without further ado, here is Mo Carrick. Well, welcome, Mo. We are so excited to have you on our podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Michelle. So glad to be here. Yeah. And we like to start with some fun banter with every guest we have on. And we were thinking you're our first guest we've ever had from Bend, Oregon. And we want to know what is so great about that. Did I say it wrong? No, you said it perfect. (laughs) (laughs) You did it well. Good job. Well, then you can explain to our listeners about how you say your state's name, because I have been corrected. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, people always say Oregon, at like Calgon, but it's Oregon. It's But you said it right. You said Oregon. Okay, okay. So good job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, what is so great about Bend? Oh, gosh. Bend, I love my town. I love my community. Bend is um, a mountain town. We have um, easy access to mountains, to desert, to rivers, to lakes. What we don't have easy access to is the ocean. But I think a lot of people are drawn to Bend, Oregon because of the, um, the wilderness uh, proximity and the opportunity for outdoor recreation. You can, we joke, you know, you can ride your horse and take a run by the river in the morning and be up snowshoeing or skiing um, in the afternoon. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful destination in that way. Yeah, well, we've heard wonderful things about it and maybe someday we can come visit you. That would be awesome. <laughs> I would love that. And Oregon's just such a beautiful state anyway, right? Like, oh, who doesn't want to be it, in Oregon? It is. And, you know, we have so much diversity in Oregon, like in terms of the landscape. That's something that is amazing to me, even though I've lived here for, you know, 27 years. I'm still amazed at how many places I haven't seen. It's a very diverse state with mountains, rivers, desert, ocean, all the things. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. So, Mo, uh, as you know, we're kind of kindred spirits because, uh, Tracy, you and I, we all care greatly about healthy workplaces and eliminating toxic work environments. And uh, we've read your book, Brave Space Workplace, where you share you create workplaces in all sectors that are brave enough to operate day in and day out in ways that bring out the best in the people who work there. And in healthcare, you know, Tracy and I, we work with organizations to create best places to give and receive care. And we have our healthy healing organization framework and are very focused on work culture as well. But we would love it if you could uh, start by telling our listeners where the Brave Space workplace concept came from, maybe even a little definition of it. And what led you to do this work? Mm. Wow, that's that's, those are all really good questions. And I'll start with the last part, Michelle, of what you asked, which is, you know, what led me to do this work. Um, I had been early in my career, I was a wilderness guide, I worked for an organization called Outward Bound and Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School. And I worked a lot with youth at risk initially, and then also with some adults. And I was pursuing a career in social work. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should try this field called organizational development. It's like therapy for companies. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I ended up changing my master's degree 
um, and moving into organizational development. And in that capacity, early in my career, I worked for other companies. I worked also in healthcare. I worked in private industry, in some publicly held companies. I was very involved in the tech industry, the cellular industry early in my career before it was digital. That's how I date myself. <laughs> Back when the phones were like this big, you know, yes. um, but I really began to notice the trends in that work of just how hard it was to create a company, even knowing everything we knew way back then, you know, let's say 30 years ago, it still was really hard for leaders to create workplaces that enlivened and activated the best that people have to offer in every sector. And I found myself, as I said, in one of my TEDx talks, I found myself getting fatigued about um, with what we know, why is it so, so hard? We should be able to do better. We should be able to have workplaces that activate and enliven our people. So that's kind of what led me into the career path that I've been on and to starting my own business in 2001 and then doing the writing and publishing that I've done on behalf of, of workplaces. And I think I'm particularly impassioned right now about a few sectors and healthcare is one of them. Um, education is another. And of course I do work in industry as well. My company's a B Corp. So we have a, a passion for um, industry as well that uh, in a variety of sectors, but I think healthcare is under such stress and strain right now. And healthcare leaders, and I don't mean just COVID, although COVID is huge, right? You know, but I mean even beyond the kind of meta level challenges with third party reimbursement and with burnout of providers and with the system as a whole. Um, it's a very tough place to lead and lead well, um, and yet it's a really important part of our of our sector. So I appreciate the work you both are doing there. And I'm, I'm called to support um, our leaders and our workers in healthcare, particularly. Oh, yeah, that's great. Well, you're, you're spot on, man. <laughs> nobody yeah. needs more help than healthcare right now, I think, right? And they have for a long time. So to your point, we've had the same kind of experience. For 30 years, we've watched the same patterns over and over and over. Right. And it's like, how do you stop the madness? How do you give them what they need so that they can, you know, replace those broken strategies, right. And begin to move forward in different ways. And mm. yeah. Um, in the book, you mentioned that toxic workplaces hurt. And I think we all kind of know that, but what makes a workplace toxic Mo? And you know, in what ways, like what specific ways does it hurt? Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, for sure. And I, um, I think there are, there are some predicted, predictable things that make a workplace toxic. And I'm going to tell you about my favorites, because I don't want to go through whole, the whole list, because somebody can read it if they want to in the book. But I think right now, some of the things that I'm finding the most toxic are leaders who are bad for people. Right. So leaders who, for whatever reason, whether it's will or skill or lack of courage, who are not able to activate and enliven that goodness that people bring, I think create toxicity over time. People begin to not tell leaders the truth. They avoid hard conversations and they often feel diminished, demoralized, demotivated, not trusting and hollow. And I think, you know, we work, we go to work and we, we stay at our workplaces primarily because of our relationship with our immediate boss. It's you, you both know this, right? It's a huge reason why we're drawn to certain workplaces and also why we leave certain ones. It's the number one reason stated for why we leave and it has been for 20 years. So that relationship between 
leader and employee is so critical. So a leader who is bad for people, a leader who um, is a bully, a leader who is not telling the truth, a leader who lacks confidence or surety really can deteriorate the workplace. So I think that's probably my number one. I think another one that we all struggle with, and I think this has probably gotten worse here as we've come through 2020 together, is our 24-7 connectivity. You know, and and I, I I sometimes like I have this relationship with my device, which I'm showing you here, right? I you know, our devices have activated such wonderful access globally. Um, we can do business on our devices. We can stay in touch from the soccer field or from um, the the doctor's office. And 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 so I don't I, I love my my phone and I love what it does for me. It also creates this feeling in the work environment that we're always on that with a text or a look at an email or a phone call, we can be accessed anytime, anywhere. And I think that creates a level of hypervigilance and a level of burnout that we've not seen um, as, as problematic. It also creates this culture of comparison that I think impacts the workplace because of social media, where people can look at a social media account and make up a story that someone else loves their job more than they do, and therefore it contributes to like bad feelings. So I think our twenty four seven access, we 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 we, I don't think we're going to be able to change the fact that that's how it is. But I find myself often thinking about how do we moderate it and modulate it in such a way, particularly when it comes to the workplace, so that people can have a life outside of work as well and not feel that constant and unrelenting pressure. Um, I think right now those are probably my two my two biggest toxic things, but there are other things that contribute to toxicity in the workplace. Uh, one, another one that is that I'll mention as probably the third leg of the most powerful stool right now is a lack of equity, diversity, and inclusion. You know, in in every sector, we have research that tells us that groups, teams, departments, and organizations do better when they have a more vibrant mix of mindsets of race, of gender, of all dimensions and difference. We do better, we make better decisions, we innovate, we problem solve more powerfully. And yet we consistently are not creating that in our workplaces. And not only are we not creating in our workplaces at the front line, but it get, the problem gets worse the farther you go up to the top of the food chain with less women, less men and women of color um, and other dimensions of difference at the top of organizations. So we're, we have this catch 22 that affects recruitment. And I think that is a type of toxicity because it means that some people don't feel that they can find a place where they belong. And that's what we all want in our workplaces, right? We spend more time at work than we do anywhere else. We want more than anything to belong. And with a lack of inclusion and equity at work, people are not finding belongingness and it limits us. So I'll stop there because <laughs> I could go on forever about toxicity, but those are my top three right now. <laughs> well, they're extremely powerful, <laughs> right? And I think we've seen that as well, right? Uh, well, one of the key variables um, that we support healthcare organizations with is, is the um, crux polarity of margin and mission. And, um, you know, it's a part of our assessment that we do with healthcare organizations and we really resonated with a similar paradox that you address, which really is about profit and people. And I wondered if you could share with our listeners just why both are important from your perspective and where you tend to see the overemphasis, you know, if there is one um, and the consequences that occur when they overemphasize one to the neglect of the other. 
Oh boy, you're you're gonna you're inviting me to stand right up on top of my soapbox. <laughs> so I'm gonna try not to do it. But yay for you both for looking at that polarity, right? Especially in healthcare organizations, which which have like many nonprofits, but healthcare, I think in particular, has that that tension, right? Because the mission yeah. is often it's compelling, right? We especially for community health centers, but really for any any health organization is 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 serving people and helping them be well, which helps society be well and gets better outcomes, you know, overall. So I think that that, I think that the, the attention for the human beings that are leading in that sector um, that you're shining on that is so powerful. Um, to me, both do matter. You know, mission and people, they're not the same thing, right? The people that work for us are, have decided to buy into our mission, right? And they're often joining the organization because they're compelled by that mission. And this is particularly true for the younger generations today who want to go to work for something that they can believe in. And um, I've seen big institutions, I'll, I'll reference one that's not a healthcare example, but I was talking to a senior people leader at Exxon, which is a big oil company, who was saying that they've had a terrible time recruiting in the last decade because the best engineers graduating out of engineering school are not attracted to their company because they don't see it as necessarily doing good in the world in terms of mission. So they've actually reshaped much of their policy about the technologies they're investing in as a petroleum company to look at alternatives and to invest in alternative energy so that young people are attracted and can keep the company successful in that way. My brother works for that company, so I'm always sort of intrigued in that, or he used to anyway. Um, so I think mission really matters. It's what calls to us. It's why we exist as an organization. And it's often why the best talent, you know, wants to work for us. Profit also matters because, and my company is a for-profit company. I believe in profitability in organizations. I'm a member of a capitalist society. The one I've grown up in here in North America, it's built on our Northern European roots. And there's some pieces of it that are very, very good. Um, now, as a B Corp, I am committed to a triple bottom line because I don't think, and my soapbox is probably that I don't think profit is enough. Because profit at any cost erodes the fabric of our society, like in a nutshell. Profit at any cost burns out people, it damages our natural resources, and it can interfere with the health of our communities. If we're only driving for profit, and we can think of, you know, all of us can think of many, many examples. I was listening to um, uh, uh, Senator King, is it Senator or Congressman King from Maine? He was interviewed on 60 Minutes last night, and he was talking about, and I, I grew up in New England, so, and I have a big fondness for Maine because I worked there for many years, and he was talking about the disenfranchisement of some of his um, citizens in northern Maine in particular, which is an area I love because they used to be mill towns where maybe a 5,000 people in, in a town worked for the mill, it was a good job, hard to get, those mills are mostly extinct now. And so, so those mills made money up until when they didn't. And when they stopped making money, it, it adversely impacted that community. So what happens next, right, um, is, a, is a bigger question than the profitability of that company. Because that enti those entire communities were built on the, economic model making sense of having that business live in that community. So I think that we have to think about profitability, but to me, the way I say it in the book and how I often think of it is profit can't be our only North Star. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it can't be the only thing because then we erode 
other things that matter really, really deeply to our very survival, as well as, of course, our thriving as human beings. So to me, it's it's an end both. And that's why I love that you said that paradox, right? Because it's an end both. How do we, how can we be profitable and also have a compelling mission that we strive to meet every day with our business? Yeah, I think there's a, what we've learned is there in these paradoxes, right? There's a, there's an interdependency that I don't think people completely understand. Yeah. And the, um, the implications when you're not giving attention to both, right? Whatever the dichotomy is, it is a false choice. You can't choose the people or the profit, right? You have to have both. So yeah, if you want to be successful, um, and, uh, you know, have positive influence on, in all those ways, right. In the communities and the, you know, so yeah. Yes. And let me just add, we put leaders, you know, to, to your point, I think, Tracy, we put leaders in a very untenable situation when we ask them to choose one over the other. If they're forced to choose, and I always think of it as like when we, when we force, for example, a publicly held senior leader to choose profit every quarter so that it always goes upwards to the right, or maybe even every month, always, always going up and to the right. That's actually not how the natural world works. Nothing gets better every single day forever and ever and ever, right? (laughs) It's not realistic, you know? And so that leader who's having to make that decision, he or she is up against it Mm -hmm. because they can't possibly make that happen on their watch. And so I think that's why those senior leadership roles become so, so fraught with burnout and high turnover. Yeah. And I think, and just because of the nature of healthcare, and the leaders in healthcare, right, and their mission to care for uh, it's it's a significant tension that is felt on an ongoing basis, right? You can't yes. forfeit the care of the patients and the team to reach the margin, right, to hit the profit. So it's that it's ongoing tension, and I think it causes some, in some regards, some moral mm-hmm. distress and some real significant challenges for some of those leaders. Sure, agreed. Yeah. And to your point, it's 100% predictable. They won't be able to sustain it if their focus is always on that profit. So we really could relate to that in your book. And um, the other thing that we really related to was when you made the comment um, that in the book, you just tackled a salient issue of our time, technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, we really related to that, too, um, because it's one of the crux polarities that we have helped organizations manage and measure. And we call it the technology platform and the practice platform. And just to date ourselves a little bit, we were around when the first EHRs rolled out, <laughs> electronic health records. So we've seen this huge impact on the practice. And uh, we know that there's definitely benefits from both and negative consequences if you overfocus on one to the neglect of the other as well. And we really appreciated how you, you know, just came out in your book pretty early on and encouraged your readers to move away from the fear of technology and rather focusing on it as a tool to achieve better outcomes. And you even called out. Um, the world of work is full of paradoxes when talking about technology because it has kind of has impacts so many things. Can you share with our listeners why technology is so important for healthy cultures and from, you know, from your experience and why we will always need humans in the workplace as well? Yeah, I love that question. And especially, you know, for me, as I think about healthcare and the impacts 
of healthcare, you know, on healthcare of technology, both good and and maybe not as good. I think about, for example, the Epic um, implementations um, of of the Epic system throughout so many systems and the difficulty that that has provided for providers who are not fluent in the technology, may resent the technology, feel like it, it's something that interferes with the time that they spend with their patients. It's like, yes, I get that. And technology is not going to, it's not stoppable. Right. You know, like to me, that's the pragmatic reality. It's like technology is here. It's going to automate work. It's going to change how we do business. And yet technology is limited you know, is as powerful as it is, it is limited. And one of the things that I, I pay close attention to is what are its limits? Because I think these last, you know, 10 or 20 years, we've been really looking at that. What are its limits? As we had AI and, you know, big data come forward, like it almost looks like it's limitless. And everything I'm noticing right now, and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a scientist and I don't, I'm not a technologist, but what I'm seeing from those that are studying these things is that we still can't have technology do what humans do when it comes to feeling, healing, and connecting. Yeah. As well as, by the way, teaching. In terms of emotional intelligence, technology cannot do that. AI can learn to copy a human to do that. But that's a really different thing. I was at a, um, I was at an airport before COVID hit. I was flying um, internationally. And I went to this. There was a coffee shop that had um, the barista had been replaced by a robot. It was actually really cute. It had like this little arm that it would say, you know, enter the machine, like what you wanted for your, your coffee. And there were probably 20 people watching this robot because it was cute and it was interesting. And there was no barista anywhere to be found, but nobody was buying. And I thought, I wonder why no one's buying. I didn't buy my coffee there. I went down the hall, but because there's no human barista who's like made a warm drink for you. It's like clearly coming from a sheet, a machine, you know, and even that tiny sort of service related space the technology was sort of ill fit for what you're looking for when you want to buy a nice warm cup of coffee like you're looking for a little bit of like come into my kitchen and have like have this connection with someone who smiles at you and of course in healthcare that's not going not going to be possible to replace the healers the assessors the mental health workers the people who see us and get us there's no sign on the horizon from what I can tell that technology is ever going to be able to do that So then it comes to how do we think about people's jobs differently? Because some jobs will be outsourced by technology. And so, okay, then let's give those people the skills to do what only humans can do. Let's not drag them down with rote and boring things that can be replaced by machines. Let's give them those higher, better. And by the way, let's turn some of our economics on its head so that the lowest paid workers who are delivering those human-centered interventions become better paid. And I'm talking about, for example, preschool teachers, nurses, aides, CNAs, people that are on the front line providing care are some of our lowest wage jobs, but they're some of our most important gateways to connection. So I, my economic uh, fantasy life says we've got to pivot how we reward what really matters um, mm-hmm. in terms of the human beingness of our work. Yeah, that so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, and we one of the things that we, you know, always see too is technology is exponentially growing to your point Mo it's going to go faster and faster but what we haven't seen is the awareness again from a leadership perspective that we have to grow our cultures just as importantly in our practices and we can get lost if we aren't paying attention to both so that was a really great example you gave us there too. 
Well, absolutely. And, you know, early in my career, I was, um, I was in healthcare. I was part of a lot of uh, what we called at that time, pa- patient centered design and patient centered reengineering. And, and I can remember watching some gains in technology um, in the healthcare sector. Yeah. And, and at the same time, just like you said, if the culture doesn't change, the technology right. won't be utilized. People won't turn on their laptop. They won't use it. I can remember training people to use new billing systems and they'd have sticky notes all over their computer to make note because they weren't using the system because it didn't feel like it helped them. So, you know, t- just building the technology does not create um, a better product or better outcome. Yeah. Well, there's that engagement with it, right? It's yeah. as a human being, you have to engage with the technology. And when you have beliefs and barriers in your own thinking and appreciation for the technology, it keeps you from that engagement, from leveraging it in a different way, right? To back to your point about the physicians and their struggle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Some of that too can just be what mental blocks do I have around engaging with it so that I can leverage it so that it does support me and doesn't prohibit me from being with my patient or engaging with my patient. And so I think, I think it's that both and again, right? It's, yeah. You got to be willing to engage. You got to be willing to let go of some stuff. <laughs> go out of your comfort zone and engage in something that maybe you're not so crazy about, right? <laughs> yes. And, and the underpinning for me, Tracy, is so that you can do or I can do my highest and best. Exactly. Right. Exactly. What's my highest and best, for example, as a provider? And, and how do I, how can I get more time for that and more reward and more satisfaction from that piece? Is it my chart notes that I do by hand? No. Not my highest and best. Yes, and so I think they just they need help, right? Flipping, flipping those limiting beliefs that are holding them back from actually getting what it is that they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said, Mo. You um, also talk about the importance of employee engagement. Talking about kind of engaging the the clinician. The last scenario we talked about, and that's important both from a organization perspective and an individual perspective. one of the things you brought out in your book that I think would be really great to hear as well as the small caveat that the evidence that um, employees at small companies do better with engagement and what we have to learn from that when you look at the different scope of sizes of organizations. Share about that. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting question, again, through the lens of healthcare, because we are seeing so many acquisitions and so many mergers and really big systems, you know, growing. Um, and there's a lot to be gained from that, a lot of efficiency, right? A lot of shared technology. And so I don't think, again, that that's necessarily going to stop happening. But what is at risk of getting lost? And what I think we have to remember is how we roll as people. We roll in small groups. We roll in small communities. Um, I often think about, just as a, like, a bit of a parallel, I think about social media and what I've seen in my own children. My daughter is 19. And when she was about 15, I was looking, I was noticing her, I don't remember what social medium it was, Instagram or something. I was looking at her account. She had like 3,500 followers. She was 14. I, when I was her age, there were probably seven people who, who I interacted with. Yes. <laughs> seven people whose opinion I cared about. And that was plenty, you know, in adolescence. Right. And so for, for sure. her to have to think about 3,000 people's opinion of her, like it's emotionally devastating and almost impossible to have genuine connection. So I think as designers of systems, even systems that get really big, we've got to maintain a mindset that human beings connect in smaller groupings 
we can't just put people in huge eight layer systems where they're distant from the top and they don't understand why their job matters and they don't get one-on-one -on -one connection and expect them to thrive. They're not going to because that's not how human beings thrive. So I, I think they're, well, that's, that's part one, I guess. Part two for me is the knowledge we have that small business and small organizations do form the backbone of our economy. So even though we have big systems, the majority of American workers actually work for small to mid-sized companies. So at so that's powerful as well that we don't imprint how to do business or how to do healthcare only on the big systems because those same tools and techniques won't work for the smaller systems, the rural system, the um, the community health system, for example. So I think we want to always keep that mindset that says that for human beings smaller is better because we can only manage relationships with a, with about you know 18 to 25 people well so let's keep how we are organizing ourselves in that way so people have community at work that's sort of how i think about it even if we're in a big organization how do we how do we preserve that right right yeah and we've looked at different ways to do infrastructures within healthcare organizations too so you've got the centralized aspects of the system which is really important but you have to have the decentralized local level where people can connect as well. And I so again, we just really resonated with that that small the smaller groups, there's a lot of value. And we can't just, you know, put that aside. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Well, and we've lived this, right? Yeah. Like Michelle and I started out in a very small company. And, you know, it was like family, right? Like yeah. it, it's a, just a whole different experience. And then of course we were acquired. In, into much larger organizations. So you can feel what happened, what begins to happen too, right? In those acquisitions and mergers. And yeah, so it's, um, yeah, there's a lot to be thinking about in regards to that. How do you get the best of both? How do you get the small local within the bigger organization, right? And get that, still that contribution, that feeling like, you know, you're making a difference and you're connected um, where yeah. it matters to you to be connected. Yes, and it's almost the inevitable outcome of success, right? I mean, we, we see that where a small system thrives and does well, and they're they're prone to being purchased by a bigger one. And so it's it's not necessarily for me, it's not about stopping that from happening. It's more about saying that how do we retain the greatness of that of that smaller system that got acquired and and keep that feeling like home. Yeah, yes. exactly. Exactly. And there's a number of paradoxes in there. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> to be leveraged, right? That's how we do sure. it. So yeah. Well, I think the other thing too is you point out several times the importance of the leader to create the brave space workplace. And we've mentioned leaders all the way through this. And for Michelle and I, they're the kingpin. Nothing works without a strong leadership force, right? That they're the role models, right? They they lay down the pathway where the organization is going to go down, and they're just huge, huge uh, contributors. So tell us your perspectives on why leadership is so critical to changing work culture. Well, I think you said it, they're kind of the linchpin, right? Leaders hold the space for the organization. They usually have positional authority as well. And we as employees are highly attenuated to the leaders on station. What I mean by that is, we, you know, we're tuned in to them. We actually copy leaders unconsciously. Um, as they lay down the blueprint for what we think good looks like, right? So um, I think leaders have at every level, the frontline leader all the way up to the C-suite has a lot of pressure on them 
to be integrated in their approach, to, to walk their talk, because people are watching and people are copying how they show up. Now, I, at the same time, I would offer like another different perspective. And what I think a lot about, I just was writing about this in terms of some of our recent political events, the, the, the leadership mantle to me is not only limited to positional authority. We have leaders in our systems all the time who are acting in ways that are courageous, that make a difference, even if they don't have the title. So what I would say to all employees is you too can lead, right? But I think you're speaking very specifically as well about those designated leaders, the ones who who oversee work, who are in managerial um, or leadership roles. And the role they play is so powerful. So they've got to model what they're seeking. They've got to show up with what I call head and heart habits, which is they've got that cognitive strength, knowledge, wisdom, expertise, what they know that helps them when a leader is really needed. But they also have that emotional capacity, which is also a brain activity, right? But it lives in the emotional footprint, which we often call emotional intelligence, which is that they can create connection. They can create inspiration. They can show up with empathy. They can build cohesion in their team. And to me, leaders of tomorrow will be, will have muscles in both of those dimensions of self. And yet I think that our, our bias in North American business culture is to overemphasize cognition and knowledge and underemphasize emotional intelligence. And it, it costs us I think that's changing right now. Uh, I think we're in a sea change of what good leadership looks like that's, that I'm excited about, but I think it's still a process. And we, we still tend to emphasize quite a bit, you know, what are the degrees next to your name? What's your experience level? Um, and, and not necessarily looking at what's your capacity to bring out the best in people, to create a community of courageous conversations, to have empathy for people who are suffering or hurting or who need help. Those characteristics are what often really matters and differentiates. So, so leadership, I don't think any organization, whether they're a 10-person company or a 200,000-person company, um, can ever get very far away from thinking about and tending to how their leaders show up and, and preparing leaders at every level to have the, the skill and the consciousness and the self-awareness, really, to, um, to see themselves as critical to the health of the whole entity, both culturally, but also, of course, in terms of results and outcomes. No well, question there for leaders. <laughs> yeah. I like, you know, and I think too, because they, this wasn't emphasized when many of the leaders that, you know, we're talking about the established leaders, the more mature leaders, right, that have been in leadership roles for a period of time. To your point, they weren't trained around these elements. They didn't learn this. And they certainly didn't have role models. Right. So it's a bit of a challenge, right, for them. So they, you know, it's an opportunity for them to invest in themselves, right, to gain these skills, to recognize the importance of that. Yes. And, and there's another dynamic I'll mention, and I, I think both of you know that I'm um, a student of and, and, and trained in the work of Dr. Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And um, I really value the work Brene and her team have brought into the world. And one of the things that I think is, is that Brene says so well is, you know, who we are is how we lead. And I think a courage-based practice of leadership moves us away from what I think many of us have inherited. And I think certainly we've inherited in healthcare, which is a more heroic mindset about leadership, that the leader should be the one who always has the answer with a capital T, that the leader needs to know everything. 
be the senior most person on the team, et cetera. That's not actually really valid or true. It probably never was, but we thought it was. And so what I see often happening is leaders have to deal with, they have to come up against their own sense of themselves as heroic and say, wait a second, what if I'm, what if the most important thing for me right now is not to save the day, but is to show up as who I am? Well, I like think that's, yeah, that's just a powerful shift. Oh yeah, well they come in as the rescuer. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to save the day, right? I'm going to be the yeah. rescuer. So they put themselves into that dreaded drama triangle, right? The persecutor, right. the rescuer, the victim. And especially yes. right now, right? This huge risk for leaders to be trying to rescue everybody, right? And, yeah. and especially because it's in their nature <laughs> to help people that are in trouble, right? To serve. So, yeah, so it's it's a big challenge. Yeah. Well, and I and I do it myself. I mean, I'm sure you do. We all do. In my we business. all have. Right. Right. I can remember when COVID first hit in my business. I remember those first few days when I started yeah. to see my business dry up and I was just panicked. And I and I was like sitting by myself making plans. How am yes. I going to do this? And finally, I was like, wait a second. You have a whole team. Like, why are you not talking to your team about what they think? You know, you're not in this alone, though. That's why you have a staff. They're smart. <laughs> They're young, they're energetic, they can help you sort this through. And that was just so like, oh, duh. Like I just yeah. was thinking in my mind, I had to present the deck to them of how we were going to survive COVID. Like, no, actually we were able <laughs> to do that together. <laughs> and it was 10 times better, you know, exactly. Uh, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think there are a lot of leaders out there having those experiences and, and it's not about judgment. It's just about our, our nature, right. And what we've been exposed to and what we know and what we don't know, you know, and um, yeah. 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 So, and, and there's being, vul being vulnerable, the power of being vulnerable. Is yeah. So and just recognizing there's a different yes. way. There's a different yeah. way, right? That's inclusive. Yes. And what a relief that is. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. been our greatest experience in the work that we've done over the last 30 years was helping to leaders to see you aren't the captain of the ship. I mean, you don't have to steer it all the time. You can get help, right? You can have other people helping you to lead the way. And when they did that, it was like, oh my gosh, right? It made such a difference for them, not as just a leader, but in their work-life balance in every aspect of their life. And yeah, so it's really, really important. Um, one of the other things too, is just a question for you is, how do you see human resources um, you know, like when you think about the HR departments and HR leaders, you know, collaborating with other leaders in the organization to create a culture. How, how do you see those roles and what kind of relationships do they need to have, right, when it comes to establishing a culture? A work yeah, oh, I love that question so much because it's, a, it's another passion point of mine. Um, I'm launching, I'm also launching a podcast this year. It's called, oh. it's going to be called Work Beyond HR. <laughs> because I think I, I think that um, I think that HR and and I this is like partly my field right I'm a SPHR I I work with HR you know organizations all over the world and I and I I care deeply about the field but I think the field of HR has become much too heavy on compliance and on advocacy for the entity and I think that that puts HR professionals in a tough tough spot because oftentimes I see them relegated to the position of operational compliance and legal risk mitigation instead of what they actually could do and can do, which is to preserve, elevate, and enliven the people assets of the company through strategies like leadership development, like cultural health, 
like team cohesion. And oftentimes you don't see HR professionals or HR groups that are even equipped to provide those things or they're too busy providing all the other things. And so for me, there's a future HR that is really different. And it maybe doesn't even get called HR and some organizations don't call this work HR anymore, um, where we say, no, actually somebody, some function of the business needs to be shepherding our most important asset. People make companies of every kind great. So we should have a function internally that helps make sure that our people are highly thriving so that they can bring their best to work every single day. And I think HR at its best is strategically connected to that work right up there at the top of the entity. I don't think that's how it actually is right now. I think HR is relegated often to compliance and they're farther down um, from the senior level. And often we see, you know, sometimes we see organizational development professionals or people, chief people officers be overseeing that function, which is good because we get that integration. Um, But I think our fields need to converge in the next 10 years and do some pretty radical uh, cleaning up of what HR has sort of devolved into. It's my personal opinion. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, well, you know, if all things don't evolve, then they're not meeting the needs. So I I think you brought up some really great points there. Yeah, and what HR does doesn't go away. I mean, in terms of, I I don't mean to minimize the importance of risk mitigation and compliance and equal opportunity and, you know, those kind of things. It's not that they aren't important. It's that it's that they've become put in a box. It's sort of like if you take your accounting function and all you do with accounting is you make sure that the numbers tick every month so that when you look in the rearview mirror, you're safe. If that's all accounting does, then your finance function doesn't have to help actually help the organization to really thrive. And to me, it's the same with HR. If all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror and say, oh, phew, we, didn't, we avoided lawsuits. We didn't have anybody cause any problems, we didn't have any discrimination. Whew. Okay, that's cool. That's important. But there's so much more that you can do. Right. Um, that suggests, I think, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it can really yeah. be maximized. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally agree. Well, Mo, we also wanted to ask you, you know, with the shift with COVID-19 of, you know, work environments have changed. There's a lot of remote work going on. Just what's been your experience with the impact that it's had on culture and on people? Yeah. Gosh, it's been, for me, it's another paradox, right? It's been an end both. I think there's some stuff that's happened this year that's been wonderful. Um, we see a, a different centering for the remote worker who previously used to often feel on the outside. And now they feel like, ah, I'm not alone. You know, <laughs> um, I'm still, I'm part of the team. I think we see more flexibility in many systems where people are able to work hours that are maybe more humane for their life. We see people able to work at home who maybe really have compelling reasons to. Um, And there's been some grace, I think, and some forgiveness uh, that's been powerful with the way we've all had to sort of pivot our work. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, I think there's been some terrible, terrible losses and some things that we've got to still wrestle with. One is equity, right? Frontline workers, have, especially essential workers, have been disproportionately impacted by having to still go to work compared to people like me who can have the privilege of working from home. Uh, I think that we also have this loss of connection mm-hmm. and also a loss of visibility of work transparency that's impacting accountability. It's impacting how we give and receive feedback. I'm noticing like a real lack of feedback dialogue happening. 
And, you know, as powerful as Zoom and virtual meeting stuff is for us, and it is powerful, I'm so grateful for the technologies. It's certainly helped my business stay upright this year. At the same time, we can't actually feel each other in that emotionally connecting way mm -hmm. that's so important to our human survival. So I don't think that we're going to ever, I don't think that the world of work tomorrow is going to mean that we just keep skipping that. I think we're going, I, I predict that we're moving into some really creative, interesting hybrid models where companies can save some costs of their overhead, but at the same time, they're going to need to have those islands for meaningful connection because, you know, our need for connection is primal. Right. And if we're working full time, we, we are most often hmm. with our work colleagues. So we bring that need right to work. So um, I think we're going to have to find ways to bring that back. Um, and I don't mean that we go back because I actually don't think we're going back. No, we would agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I don't either. Yeah, it's, and it's just to your point, I think it's really important that we just pay attention to what we're learning during this time. And, uh, and so that we can really make the best going forward as we kind of move out of the pandemic. And it's going to be a while, but we're, there's a lot of lessons happening right now, right? Well, this, there are. Yeah, this weekend I was um, just doing some reflective work and I was on Spotify and I, I ran across uh, a channel that, uh, no, an app, I think that's what I found. I found an app that makes the sound of office work. I just thought that was so interesting. Do you miss the sound of keyboards next to you? Do you miss the buzz of the whatever? I thought, oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, it's like how oh they pipe God. in the crowd in a football game, right? Like, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's to help you feel like you're a part of something, right? Versus in this isolated bubble, you know, doing, but we've been working, rem I've been working remotely, oh my gosh, since 2000. So, you know, this is old stuff for me. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, and there was some interesting stuff. It goes back to our technology conversation a little bit because there, I heard a TED talk um, many years ago from a wonderful young woman named Alex Generous, and she she is on the Asperger's spectrum, and she was talking about a technology that they're creating for Asperger's uh, humans who can read the pheromonal response and translate it to help make meaning out of emotional states of being. And I was like, that's what we need in COVID. <laughs> like, if we could have a pheromonal sensor that would allow us to feel each other. It would really help. And, you know, we, with telemedicine and things in healthcare, like we, we can do things now that are just really amazing in terms of cost reduction, but we still have to remember like yeah. that factor. So how do we design that? It's going to be, it's going to be fun, I think, to think about, but, um, but a little bit challenging as new learning always is. But without, and I think to your point, without this experience, many of these things would never have happened, right? Yeah. Things that we will benefit from in the future wouldn't even have been thought of. So I, I, you know, throughout the whole thing, Michelle and I kind of like everything happens for a purpose and a reason. And it's been a huge reset. There's been tons of innovation and challenges. And, and that's true for anything, right? You're going to take some steps forward and you're going to have some losses. And these have been significant. And it's not in any way to minimize, you know, what has occurred. But there will be benefits that yeah. we wouldn't have experienced. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, so as we wrap this up, like here's our million dollar question for you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your greatest hope for the workplace of tomorrow? <sighs> what I really hope about the workplaces of tomorrow is that we 
we the collective, we society at large, and we especially leaders on station, begin to really get in our bones that work can and should activate and enliven every human being that decides to work for and with us. And that it's our job to help them show up functioning as fully as they can. And that that makes our world better, makes our workplace better, but also makes our world better. Um, Because to me, if we can embrace that mindset, we do things differently. That third leg of the stool, how we show up, what decisions we make start to become different so that we end up with more vibrant and connected and meaningful workplaces that are doing awesome things in the world and making money, but that people are just so excited to bring their talents to. Um, and I, when I think of the younger generations that are entering the workforce, my children and yours, like they're, they are wanting work to have a different place in their life than I did. <laughs> and I feel ob- obligated as a senior person at this point to say, okay, we can do that because we can, we can, we see it happening. Um, so it's not too tall of an order, is it? <laughs> no, a piece of cake. What do you mean? <laughs> Certainly, hundred percent possible. Hundred percent. For much here, you guys. Oh no, no. Well, nothing. We haven't been asking for for a long time, and I think we we align with you and what you're asking for, right? And I I think the younger generation is teaching us the things that matter, right? That we kind of maybe strayed away from. And, um, you know, Michelle and I both, you know, worked in a very, we were very mission driven. I mean, it was all about the impact we were making and, you know, and we left our corporate roles because we had lost that. So it's, you know, we, we get it. We get what the younger people are saying. It is so much more meaningful, right? When you're engaged in an organization that you feel you're contributing and it is contributing to the greater purpose, the greater good of all. And yeah. Our values drive us. They're why yes. we get up every day, right? They're yes. why we get up every day and do what yeah. we do, all of us in every single role. And so we, our, our organizations need to be connected to those yeah. um, so that we can feel human. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that we're contributing exactly. to something that matters. Yeah. 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 Bringing the human exactly. being back into the workplace, right? We're not a cop. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Not a cog in the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Mo, thank you so wow. much. I, this has just been, it's gone by so fast, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's because uh, we do do similar work and we have different experiences, but we are totally aligned, as Tracy said. And I just want to commend you on your bravery. I mean, it. we know it's hard to step out and to challenge the status quo. And I think you took that exhaustion that you experienced a long time ago, and it's been really exciting to hear that the work that you're doing and your future work. Mm, thank you. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I would agree. I would agree. And I just, it's always so exciting when you meet somebody who, right, you're kind of connected with at that level, right? That you have that, that common, you know, understanding experience around the world. And I think it helps to validate for us too, what yeah. we've been seeing, what we've been experiencing, right? And just to know that there's hope, Right. Because there's people like you out there. Right. To Michelle's point, being brave, creating these spaces and helping organizations across the country, across the world to be these brave spaces and uh, to have healthy cultures because it's, it's critical. It's critical. 
So no, thank you. I, take, I take the same inspiration, you know, connecting with you both and knowing that you're sharing your work in the world. And I do feel like we have a lot of problems as a society and we need all hands on deck. You know, so I love having conversations like this about others and and with your listeners who people who really do want and are committed to doing the right thing in their workplace. I am I, I want people to feel me and us at their back, like go, go, you got it, you know, we can do it. Because it's it is how I garner hope. Yeah, yeah, us too. Us yeah. too. So thank you. Is there any last comments that you would like to make before we close? Just keep up the great work. If people want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, although not that much. And I, my website is mocarrick.com and there's some free stuff that they can go there and download. And I'd love to have your listeners try out my podcast, which should launch in early February. Um, and I'd love to interview you both on it. That could be really fun. And um, yeah, so thank you. Thanks for talking with yeah. me and letting me join your show. Yeah, and we'll okay. include those links in the show notes for everybody. And uh, thank you again, yeah, Mo. It's thank been you, Mo. Just a great experience for us. We look forward to being on your podcast and hearing your podcast. It'll be wonderful. Yeah. And uh, thanks to our listeners. We'll see you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thanks, as always, for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast.